welcome to the Trans-Imperial History Podcast. My name is David Mutafi Haller. Join us as we make sense of one of the most exciting fields in history today, Trans-Imperial History. What is Trans-Imperial History? How has it evolved? And how does it push the boundaries of scholarship about empire and colonialism? What does it mean to think trans-imperially? And what should you read if you're interested in trans-imperial history? In this podcast, my colleagues and I introduce you to some of the leading scholars working in the field of trans-imperial history today and tell us how they began asking new questions and revolutionized the field. They talk to us about the key challenges and insights of trans-imperial history today and about the future of history. Hello to all our viewers here and we are today talking to Professor Haral Fischer-Tine who is a professor of global history at ETH Zurich. He has written widely on South Asia and colonialism and this is in reference with the Pierre conference that was held in Geneva. Welcome Professor Tine and thank you so much for your wonderful presentation at the conference. It was quite engaging. We saw the number of questions that followed and this is just a follow-up conversation from there. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for your interest in these topics that are so dear to my heart. Right, absolutely. They are quite engaging topics and probably they are the right direction for the future research as well. So in that direction itself then, how do you think these trans-imperial histories intersect with the stories and with the conversations on colonialism? I think the new approach of looking at connections between empires that the processes of mutual learning of copying practices from other empires but also improving or changing their own methods because of rivalries with other empires all of this very much affects how colonialism is practiced on the ground so the kind of technologies of rule of administration ranging from technicalities say of raising taxes gathering information over the entire field of colonial science which is very often inspired by other colonial empires that are seen as being far ahead in this one field or the other and and then processes of catching up are starting so in the end we can see that the face of colonialism on the ground and actually what is experienced at the receiving end of colonialism definitely changes due to these processes. And just to give you maybe one, one example that is very telling, there was a French legal expert by the name of Joseph Chaillet in the 1880s, 1890s, and he was sitting in some Paris office having a very decent, not too exciting job there. And then he was approached by the French government who were in the process of expanding their empire, both in North Africa, West Africa, but also in Indochina. So what became Andalusie, then later on today's Vietnam and Cambodia and, and Laos. And the French wanted to learn, especially in this Asian context, how to do empire, how to do it better. So they sent Chaillet first to the Dutch colonies, to Java, where he tried to study how the Dutch were making the most out of their plantation economy, how they were disciplining labor and so on. Then later on, they sent him to British India to see, actually, to study the legal system, to study the penal system in the first place, to see how they established to 
implement law and order and all that. And as a result of that, the face of French colonialism changed over the next years. Much of these borrowings from Dutch and British, what you can say in a very cynical way, it was a it was an exchange looking for the best practice of subduing large portions of the colonized population. And that's certainly a very palpable way in which this trans-imperial perspective allows us to see how empire is constantly in the process of perfectioning their own technologies of rule. There is also a debate of what how we should define trans-imperial right. reality and what are the actors that we're looking at. And thus far... Right. In my example, I restricted myself to, to the most obvious level, which would be on the level of imperial state actors, right? There's one, somebody sent from the French government and he is in contact with, I don't know, the provincial government of Bombay or the United Provinces or even the government of India and so on. So this is on the most official level. If we choose a more far-reaching, a wider, more comprehensive definition, however, I think it's even more significant to pursue these trans-imperial approaches. If we include people who are operating in these imperial structures but are not officially employed, take the entire example of imperial science, then you see that this project of European colonial imperialism in the 19th and starting from the 18th century, actually, but in, definitely in the 19th and by the early 20th century, is not a nationally segregated empire, the French Empire, the British. I mean, we have it in our, even in the order of my library, you find the one shelf for the French and more shelves for the British and so on, and various other shelves. In actual fact, however, this is completely blurred by the existence of, for instance, imperial scientists from Germany, from Switzerland, who were working in this context. So there are quite a few of very telling examples. Just one case, I mean, that my colleague Bernhard Scheer has written about the Sarrazins, who were Swiss scientists from Basel. And in their example, you also can see what you could call empire hopping. So first, they gained their, their fame with a study of the indigenous population on in Ceylon. Mm -hmm. Then they spent years in the Dutch colonial empire, actually benefited from the protection of the Dutch colonial state, and again, were even more famous than as scientists. And at least one of the Sarrazin cousins then also was in the French Pacific. And so you can see that this, if you widen the definition and say this trans-imperial contacts do not necessarily only mean official diplomatic contacts of on the nation state level but you have this entire array of scientists and administrators the i mean half of the indian penal system in the 19th century was run by germans in the mm -hmm. in the name of the british empire then you see how it gets really interesting and then we also have to answer completely new questions about what did imperialism do in the metropoles as well. Right. That we can no longer say, that, oh, well, the Germans, they had just this tiny little 30-year empire in Africa. That's not so significant. The Swiss did not have an empire at all. Then we see this continuous involvement over decades or even over a century of, I would say, half of Europe in this pan-European or pan-Western enterprise of imperialism. 
Right, right. That's very interesting because my mind goes back to, again, one such individual, Claude Martin, Major General Claude Martin, who was moving in North India at this point of time from Lyon. And he also established, I think, uh, three institutions of learning as well. So scientists, as you spoke about, so I mean, uh, so elaborately, but also entrepreneurs, people with their own mercenaries, people with their own requirements as well, moving around within that colonial framework. Which I think is an excellent segue for our next question regarding how does then one separate the study of these individuals with that of organizations? So let's say the scientists who are moving around or even the German legal example that you gave uh, being based of or actually evolving and shaping the British legal system. How does then one try and separate the study of these individuals, <laughs> their biographies versus the system overall? I don't see the necessity of separating it. So there is a tendency and a trend in much of historiography I'm seeing, which goes to stressing the structural, the materiality, mm -hmm. the discourse. So you have this completely decoupled from human agency. And this is something I am always very distrustful when I hear that. It's not the kind of soulless history I want to write and produce. So I think there should be a connection between actual individuals, both those who are in the end suffering from or experiencing the practices of colonialism as an end result of all these structural and material flows and connections. They should not be forgotten, and these are human beings, but also I think we cannot and we should not completely edit out human actors in this. But I see your point. The danger is that we get lost in adding one fascinating biographical anecdote to the other. And then we have arrived at this kind of microhistory that is more about storytelling mm -hmm. than about understanding historical processes. Mm -hmm. And I think the really challenge, and I mean, the ideal I would aspire to and probably ne never arrive at, would be to combine the two, to weave these wider, this more far-reaching structural insights into, into a narrative where humans are also visible and that can serve as a lens to make things, I think, much better comprehensible and also to have a sense for their significance if human agency is involved in these stories. Yeah. So right. that is sort of a, a balancing act between having this constant quest for analytical bite of understanding the larger processes, long-time evolutions, the material factors and structural factors and all that, and yet not completely losing sight of people involved in history. Right, right. And whatever I've read of the YMCA paper and whatever I heard about it, I think it's already meeting that balancing point. So mm -hmm. when it gets published, I think we'll see a perfect example of that balance that you're already talking about here. What does, and this is again, the example that you gave of your own library of, of divisions of these empires, etc. When one then goes to the archive, which may not have this kind of a perfect uh, understanding or triangulation of these various sources in terms of transimperiality, what are some of the methods that a historian can use in order to make our journey easier one, when one approaches the archive for such studies? First, I would want to warn against one thing, which would be now, oh, transimperiality is the new hot thing and we, everybody has to do it. Okay. I think we, we should steer clear of such an attitude and sort of refrain from employing trend scouts. What's the next big thing and the one method that is... It happens. I mean, obviously, uh, since I have to review quite a few of research applications, one can see that there are certain 
conjunctures of themes and methods. But I think one should start from the problem, the historical problem that you want to understand. And if there are indications that a trans-imperial method might help there, then go for it. But there definitely are a lot of topics where this is not required. So that would be the more general uh, point. Now, in concrete terms, when you have indications that trans-imperial lens might help to better understand things, what I found helpful is when, which one thing that makes these uh, trans-imperial connections visibly are transnational actors such as, I mean, I worked on, on the YMCA, but people were working, which was present in 50, about 50, 55 Asian and African countries by 1900. Some of them run by the Dutch, others by the French, some by the British. Uh, the, the same would go, of course, for the Red Cross, but also the, the classical missionaries, such as the Salvation Armies and all these kind of new civil society, international civil society organizations that come up. About uh, 10, 12 years ago, we had a huge project here at, at Zurich on the global anti-vice movements. So the global temperance movements and anti-prostitutions. And, and there were, I mean, some of these organizations that were operating internationally. There was this vigilance society first founded in Britain, but it had branches everywhere. And they were trying to stop the state regulation of prostitution in the, in, in the colonies. And they were a pain in the neck of colonial administrators, British, Dutch, French, you name it, because they always made a fuss about this scandal of uh, the uh, civilized power tolerating sin and vice and so on and so forth. And at following the actors of these international organizations, you had to, you had to cross, you had to leave your comfort zone of the familiar they would they would not stop in 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 bombay and and calcutta they would move on to rangoon they would move on to saigon they would move on to hong kong and and so on and so forth so that is following actors that are by definition by their by, by their own agenda operating transnationally and transimperially that allows you this is one entry point that allows you to reconstruct things and also see connections and oh the law in French Indochina changed in that particular year, and that is definitely connected to the same guy who caused the fuss in Ceylon two years earlier. Sure. Yeah. So that would be just one example how you how you can sort of follow in by shadowing your your actors of, of these transnationally operating civil society organizations, you are more or less compelled to adopt a, a trans-imperial lens. <laughs> but doesn't that make the job of the historian much more difficult to be aware of all of those changes as you're saying as you're shadowing your actor but moving in different contexts even in present day wouldn't yes it it does and and here i think we all have to eat humble pie i mean what can we still do with some degree of authority and what can't we do it starts i mean again this is a question that has been raised about two decades ago when global history became a big thing then first of all, it requires a lot more money because that requires the infamous multi-sided archival research, right? You have to start with the uh, archives of that particular transnational organization, which may be, as was the case with the YMCA, it's scattered between Geneva and Minneapolis, Minnesota. So 
from there, if you really want to understand things and you get hints to, to use the local arch, you use the Imperial Archive in London and Paris, maybe in, in The Hague in the Netherlands as well, as the case may be. And then you have to go to the local archives in various Indian provinces, in various South Asian cities and so on. And this costs an awful lot of money. So the one challenge, and that has been rightly, I mean, you can criticize it, but it, I think it's important to problematize it and say this creates a situation where it becomes more and more difficult for young, especially researchers from non-Western countries and non-top universities to to do this kind of work at all. So that is one problem that needs mm -hmm. to be solved. And I think, and the second problem is, even if you happen to be in a top-notch institution in Geneva or Zurich or Cambridge or Yale and so on and so forth, and you have the money, that there is an, a limitation to your regional and linguistic expertise. So, and here, I mean, I think, as I see it, the solution would be to really create multiple cooperations in these various places, which allows us, would allow young local historians to be part of, of larger international projects and with their regionals expertise, with their knowledge, the context and their linguistic skills, it definitely would also enhance the quality of the end result. So if the, I think when we adopt and we think through this global and trans-imperial approaches, it ushers in the end of the heyday of the lonely wolf scholar of 19th century, the lonely wolf historian who does it all by, by right. himself. Right, right. Following the, the trickster as he travels across, I think, in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Yes. How would you then assess your own contribution to the field? I think one of the things that is very clear from our previous questions is that you are working on these actors and you are trying to shadow them as well while you're writing your histories. What are some of the other ways in which you would assess your own contribution or that of the current historians to this field of transimperiality, given the caveat that you gave us that it should not be a trendy thing, but rather yes. be to your own. Yeah, thing. I mean, if it is required, if the sources lead me to the assessment that it would help to, to look at the neighboring empire and, and this or that connection, then it is definitely worth pursuing, but not for its own sake, because oh, I want to go transimperial and uh, that wouldn't lead very far. So I would say the Looking back, I mean, maybe it helps to, to say a few words about my background, my scholarly socialization, if you will. And I was trained in this school of, in the Heidelberg School of Area History. So st studying at Heidelberg in the 1980s, 1990s, that was uh, the heyday of as local as, as you can possibly learn the languages. You're a bit, bold to speak about the entire district speak about your village right so that was the that was the ideal and it and it taught me a lot of the of the importance and the significance of local context so however it was also constraining in in many senses to to understand everything if it's very courageous and it's the national indian context or and the only the imperial if there is a a region outside of India, which which needs to be studied, then it would be Britain. Of course, it's only the imperial relation. There is nothing else between. So that was a sort of a tunnel vision that kept me from seeing other things. And then it was eye-opening 
to to see that it, it it's not sufficient. It's not enough. So again, I continue boring you with uh, no, examples uh, examples from my from my biography. So my PhD was uh, in this spirit, in this Heidelberg spirit. It was very local on one particular school in the Saharanpur district in in in, in the United Provinces and the good right, school right. by by yeah. Arya Samaj, a Hindu reform organization. So it, 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 I expected it to be extremely local, and all my area study skills would be required. And then one day, I found in the sources that the Arya started a new sub-organization they called the Arya Kumar Sabha. Mm -hmm. So that was a youth organization. And I was, I couldn't, I mean, couldn't believe it when I heard they did this because there were some Americans in neighboring district who had started the YMCA. And the Hindu reformers felt they had to copy this because the local youth was attracted to what these American chaps were doing. I said, what American YMCA workers, what the heck are they doing in this remote districts of, of northern India? And that sort of, and it didn't end there. Then I said, oh, the Boy Scouts were also present. And this was a global organization. So I could not possibly decouple the history of this particular institution and, and this northern Indian district from global processes and global actors. So, yeah. And it took a while, but then, yeah, till I took up the challenge, but then I thought that fascinating and, and really helps me understand things better if I widen, if I zoom out a little bit and widen the perspective and do not accept, I mean, the in Trenched boundaries of what should be and what should not be relevant. <laughs> and it's also so important to connect the thematic pasts of these actors or these institutions as well. I'm just thinking about Sam Higginbottom, whom I come across in my own work at Ahabad in the Agricultural Institute. And then how can you not then link it with his, I think, Presbyterian background as well? So it's also important yeah. to link all these questions of themes along with these ideas as well. That was a very, very good example, Professor. We are looking forward to welcoming you at the Graduate Institute in Geneva as well this semester. And uh, I think you're also taking a course with us here this semester. You'll be leading a course as well. So what are your thoughts about that? How did you get associated with the Institute? And are you looking forward to coming here with us? Yes, I mean, I knew some of the of the professors working there. Personally, I've been there before. We have been in in touch and I was contacted if I would be interested in teaching a course and, and I, I felt honored of course and and really excited I, I shouldn't say that but I mean it's great here at ETH but my clientele of students are normally majoring in chemistry architecture math and let's say they're um, excitement for history at large and history of non-European regions is still in the building, if I can put it that way. <laughs> so to actually have an audience of students who are interested in history and are interested in non-Western regions of the world, for that matter, this I, I found really attractive and I'm looking forward to it. Right. Thank you so much, Professor Fischer-Tine, for your time for these wonderful thoughts and wonderful ideas. And we are really looking forward to welcoming you at the Institute. Once again, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generosity of the Pierre Dubois Foundation and the Swiss National Science Foundation. It has been edited by Michel Olguin Fluglicker and David Munsafi Haller. 
If you want to learn more about trans-imperial history, please follow the links in the description.